The sermon title today is The Power of Weakness, and I'm going to be reading to you a scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. You may notice a tiny bit of defensiveness here, because Paul, throughout his whole ministry, had to constantly defend his authority to speak for Jesus. Remember, he was not one of the original 12. He never even met Jesus. But after he was converted, he became the leading evangelist for the church. But some people were sort of wondering about his authority. And so he speaks about that directly in this passage, this letter to the Corinthians. He says, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not the plausible words of wisdom, but with the demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Amen. Most of our lives are lived in the crossfire between two very powerful forces, love and power. You cannot express love and power at the same time. Each of us must choose between love and power in our lives. In the text, Paul says that his authority comes not from power, but from weakness. I came to you in weakness and in fear. In fact, the writer Tony Campolo makes the point that ultimately Christianity is all about choosing love over power. In the 1950s, there was a social psychologist by the name of Willard Waller. I love that name, don't you? He was from Walla Walla, Washington. No, just kidding about that. But uh, Willard Waller, and he developed a thing called the principle of least interest which says that in any human relationship, the person with the least interest has the most power. Now, imagine a couple, a married couple. They come to a minister for counseling. Let's say the man is ready to leave the marriage. He's given up on the relationship. He doesn't care if it survives. But the woman still loves her husband very much. She's desperate to hang on to the relationship, to keep it alive. Now you ask yourself the question, in that situation, who is in the position of control? Who has the power to call the shots in that relationship? The answer, of course, is the one who loves the least. The principle of least interest at work. You can see the same principle at work in a discussion, let's say, between a labor union and the management of a company. The party with the most power will inevitably be the one who cares the least about ending the strike. If the strike is hurting the company more than it's hurting the union members, then the company has the greatest interest in seeing it end, and the union has the most power at the bargaining table. Thus it is that power is the opposite of caring. To have the most power, you have to care the least. I mean, think of all the James Bond movies that have ever been made. You know, it doesn't matter who's playing James Bond. They're all the same movie, you know. There's just one movie that's made over and over again. In every James Bond movie, you got these bad guys doing bad things. 
and the bad guys always have as accomplices these beautiful, beautiful women who help them in their badness. And James Bond is so debonair and charming that he always gets these women to fall in love with him. But does he ever fall in love with them? No. No, absolutely not. Because if he can get them to fall in love with him, without him falling in love with them, he can manipulate them. He can control them. He'll have power over them. He can even get Russian spies to defect if he can just keep far enough away from love. Love is the opposite of power. That's why Paul says he did not come to the Corinthians from power, but from, but from weakness. I remember years ago hearing some Christian radio show, and it was a call-in kind of thing where people would call in, and some fundamentalist minister was there and was answering questions, and some guy called in and said, Pastor, tell me the answer to this question. In a Christian home, who's the head of the house? I'm sure he was hoping for a comment on male superiority there. But I just remember thinking, what an inappropriate question for a Christian. A Christian doesn't ask, who's the master? We ask, who's the servant? That's the whole stupid question that James and John asked of Jesus. Lord, who's going to sit at your right hand in glory? It's the power question. And Jesus can only shake his head and say, if you really knew what my kingdom was about, you wouldn't ask that. Because in my kingdom, the masters are servants and the first are last. The other thing we need to know this morning is that when you choose love over power, you get authority. Max Weber was the father of the field of sociology. And in his study of organizations, he noted the difference between power and authority. Power is the ability to make people do your will. But authority is the ability to get others to want to do your will. Joseph Sittler noted the same thing. He writes, authority is a force continuous with the whole nature and performance of the person or thing possessing it. My grandmother had authority. My grandfather had power. I remember what my grandmother said and I wanted to do it. I have no remembrance of anything my grandfather said except that I had to do it. Throughout the Bible, we can see many situations of this juxtaposition of power and authority. In the Old Testament, Pharaoh in Egypt, he had the power but Moses had the authority. In the Babylonian exile, King Nebuchadnezzar had the power, but little Daniel had the authority. In Jesus' time, the Pharisees, they had the power, but Jesus had the authority. Agrippa had the power, but Paul had the authority. You, we can see it throughout history. In the British Empire, their days in India, the British Empire had the power, but Gandhi had the authority. Or in the civil rights movement, it, the police and Bull Connor, they had the power, but Martin Luther King and the civil rights marchers, they had the authority. Mother Teresa never had any power her entire life, 
but she spoke with tremendous authority. Where does that come from? Power can never stand up to true God-given authority. In the text, Paul says he speaks not from wisdom or power, but from weakness so that the power of God could be demonstrated. And yet he does speak with authority. His authority comes from the same place that all authority comes from. Sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. He speaks with authority to the Corinthians because he has sacrificed so much in his life for the cause of Christ. He writes later on in the letter, he says, I was beaten twice, left for dead, stripped of everything I had, diseased, jailed, and shipwrecked. That's what makes him qualified to be an apostle, his sacrificial love for Christ. I remember once seeing this TV documentary on the life of an ex-mafia Don. This guy was a big, tough guy. At one time previously, he'd probably had more power than most mayors of his city. And yet in one of the scenes, the filmmaker captured this guy being chewed up and bossed around by his little old Italian mother. And she was just giving it to him, giving it to him. And, and he was just sitting there taking it. Why? Because she had spent a lifetime in sacrificial love for him. That's where authority comes from in life. God encourages us to choose love over power. And he shows us how true authority will come from that choice. Paul came to the Corinthians not in power but in weakness. But in the weakness, God's power was made manifest. I close with one of my favorite stories. It's a true story of something that happened in 1983. A guy named Nathan de Graffenreid went out on the porch to let the cat out in the morning. And uh, all of a sudden, a big man stepped around the corner of the house and pointed a shotgun at him. Lord, honey, Louise heard her husband say, open the door, he's got a gun. Before he could open the door, a man with the gun shoved Nathan inside, pushing him and Louise de Graffenreid up against the wall. Don't make me kill you, he shouted, thrusting the gun in their faces. The couple knew immediately who the intruder was. He was one of the escaped inmates whom they'd heard about on the radio. His name was Riley Arsenault of Memphis, who with four other inmates had escaped from the Fort Pillow State Prison the previous Saturday. Louise de Graffenreid, a 73-year-old grandmother, stood her ground. Young man, she said, I'm a Christian lady and I don't believe in no violence. Put that gun down and you sit down. I don't allow no violence here. The man relaxed his grip on the shotgun. He looked at her for a moment, then he laid the gun on the couch. Lady, he said quietly, I'm so hungry, I haven't eaten in three days. Okay, young man, you sit down there and I'll fix your breakfast. Nathan, she said, go get this young man some dry socks. With that, Louise went to work. She fixed him bacon, eggs, white bread toast, milk and coffee. Then she got out her best napkins and set the kitchen table. When we sat down, I took that young man by the hand and I said, young man, let's give thanks that you came here and that you're safe. After breakfast, we sat there and I began to pray. I held his hand and I kept patting him on the leg. He trembled all over. I said, young man, I love you and God loves you. 
God loves all of us, every one of us, especially you. Jesus died for you because he loves you so much. You sound like my grandmother, he said, and tears began to fall. About that time, we heard police cars coming down the road. They're going to kill me when they get here, he said. No, young man, they aren't going to hurt you. You've done wrong, but God loves you. Then me and Nathan took him by the arms, helped him up, and took him out the kitchen toward the door. You let me do the talking, I told him. The police got out of their cars. They had their guns out. I shouted to them, y'all put those guns away. I'm a Christian lady. I don't allow no violence here. Put those guns away. He wants to go back. And then me and Nathan took him out to the police car. They put the handcuffs on him and took him back to prison. Sidebar. That afternoon, two of the other prisoners who'd been separated from Arsenault entered a suburban backyard where a couple were barbecuing. The husband went into the house and came out with a gun. The escapees shot and killed him and took his wife hostage, releasing her the next day. The reporter later asked Mrs. de Graffenried, was she frightened? No, she said, Nathan was scared, but not me. I knew God was with me. I knew that God had sent that young man to me for a reason. I knew God would lead me in the right direction. Nathan and Louise de Graffenried are members of the Mount Sinai Primitive Baptist Church. They have a hymn in their hymnal at that church that I'm sure they were familiar with. It goes like this. Are you able to remember when a thief lifts up his eyes that his pardoned soul is worthy of a place in paradise? Lord, we are able. Our spirits are thine. Remold them. Make us like thee, divine. Let us all have the wisdom to choose love over power. Amen.